Welcome back to Acamedia Presents. No, it's Cinema Journal that presents Acamedia. I think it's Acamedia Cinema Journal does that not, does the presenting. Yeah. We do the talking. You see, that's a, it's been a little while. We've It's been a very, very busy semester. You may have even heard us recently in the news. It's been a very uh, contentious graduation time, so we're only now getting our, our heads cleared. Yeah, we had Mike Hotpence as our graduation speaker. Mike Maybe Hot people Pence. missed out on that. But. We will put a link to Mike Hotpence on our website if you're not familiar, because you really should uh, look up his work, and also he really earns those hot pants he yeah, wears. You know, his legs. It's, it, those, those are pretty good legs. He's got some quads. He does have there. some quads, and... And it's amazing what hot pants do for political discourse. Yes. I think there's actually a lot to be said for, you know, drop and trial. Yeah, I think so. And especially opening up communication across aisles, which we have so much trouble doing today. I think he can help facilitate that. Which, yeah, we had a crazy weekend here with graduation and and students walking out. And then not just that, but then the reaction to it. And both, which we are very um, so glad to see so much support for the students, but also the vitriol coming from people is, is a challenge to deal with. It can be a challenge, but it's actually kind of nice to have opportunities for the students and for faculty and other people who who care about this place to speak up for the values that really motivate their their participation in this community. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about like some kind of doctrinaire church line or anything like that. It's about this kind of uh critically engaged citizenship. Yeah, and, and it should be noted, this was all driven by the students. There was 100%. no faculty, no administration. This was all the students. It's a, It was a very, very Notre Dame protest. They, Although they were the ones that organized it, they basically checked with the administration. They worked with the head of security to pick out an exit yeah. so they could properly uh, exit peacefully without disrupting the ceremony. That's very Notre Dame, and I love that. It is. You know, it's it's uh, respectful but very principled, and I think that's that's a really important factor. That especially those objecting to it really should better understand Notre Dame itself, not just the nature of the protest. Yeah, that these folks are a class act. Yep, and we're gonna miss them. They're I know, all, they're all. We some are. of us, are, you know, some of them have just let me know they've uh, made their last visit to our performing arts center, and they're driving home today, so they're going yeah. to their new homes. Fair skies and and trailing winds. Yes. Well, that actually means, no offense to them, but now we can finally get to some Acomedian. Acomedian. Yeah. So, and we've got two fantastic segments for you today. Um, The first one, I've got an interview with Stephen Cohan, who has an article in the new uh, spring issue of Cinema Journal. He is also, you probably know, the president of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. So we got a big wig. We do have a big wig. So that's that's a good interview. And we also have a transmission from across the pond from Bill on his extended uh, walkabout in the Low Countries. Yeah, if you don't know it, Bill has been in the Netherlands, I think, for the whole semester or year. Um, And so he brings us an interview with Alex Badenoch, who is one of the creators of the Radio Garden, which is an international live radio website. If you're not familiar with Radio Garden... You're going to really be fascinated by this. It's super cool stuff. I guarantee you, when you turn this podcast off, you are going to go to Radio Garden after hearing this. I believe it to be true. All right. Shall we uh, hear your conversation with Stephen? Let's get it going. (laughs) 
Stephen Cohan is Dean's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English at Syracuse University. His many books include The Sound of Musicals, CSI Crime Scene Investigation, Incongruous Entertainment, Camp Cultural Value and the MGM Musical, Hollywood Musicals, The Film Reader, and Masked Men, Masculinity and Movies in the 50s. His essays are also widely published in journals like Camera Obscura and Screen, and collections like Interrogating Postfeminism, Gender and the Politics of Popular Culture, The Trouble with Men, Masculinities in European and Hollywood Cinema, and Reinventing Film Studies. His newest work includes essays on The Boys in the Band, Billy Wilder's Apartment Plots, The Cold War Cycle of Musicals Set in Paris, and The Star Biopic. He is also president of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. We are very excited to welcome to the podcast Stephen Cohan. Uh, thank you for joining us, Stephen. Oh, thank you for asking me. Yeah, we're excited to talk about your, uh, in addition to, to other things, your new Cinema Journal article, The Manic Bodies of Danny Kay. This is actually Danny Kay's second appearance on the Acamedia podcast, because back in episode 14, I talked with Julie Wilson about her Cinema Journal article on celebrity diplomacy and uh, Kay's 1950s work for UNICEF. Um, so he's popular around here. And you've published a lot of great work previously on both musicals and star masculinity. So I'm curious, what led you to want to delve further into Danny Kaye's star persona specifically? There were several factors. The first was I had planned to have a chapter on musical stars in uh, my book on 50s masculinity, Masked Men. And one of the stars I was going to uh, incorporate in that chapter was Danny Kaye. And for various reasons, the main one having to do with the length of the manuscript, I didn't write that chapter, but some of that work went into my book on MGM and Camp, but Danny Kay never starred at, well, he did star at MGM in one, uh, in one musical. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd really s sort of forgotten, uh, put him aside for quite a while. In addition, at my first or second conference for SCMS, it was then SCS, I went to a panel on animation, and there was a very interesting paper on Daffy Duck. And it included a snippet from a book review, the cartoon I talk about in my article, where Daffy is based on Danny Kaye. And I, that had just stayed with me for like 20 years. Wow. And then I gave the court gesture to um, the young child of two friends of mine, and he adored it. And that got me renewed my interest in, uh, in K. And I gave a lecture version of the article at, as a plenary at a couple conferences on the performing body. And the more I worked on the lecture and the more audience uh, reaction I got, I, I became much more in, engaged in the project and started doing the historical research that's the basis of the article. But it also connects very strongly to points I make uh, about the historical context of gender and sexuality um, in the 40s and early 50s that I make in Masked Men and in Congress Entertainment. So there's a definite continuity. Yeah, and how long simmering it's been, too. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to pursue this. I'm, I've been talking with someone, um, with an editor, about basing a book on this and looking at other comedic musical stars like Red Skelton, um, and Donald O'Connor, because basically when uh, male stars are, uh, of the musical are talked about, it's always Kelly and Astaire, and then 
Crosby. Well, you also mentioned Daffy Duck in there. That was a really fun part of your chapter, both the you know overt references you have to Daffy Duck, and you've got lots of nice little writing bits in there, kind of calling back to that connection. So I thought that was really intriguing, too, because I think when we talk about Hollywood, we always think of the live-action classical Hollywood movies, and we forget about the, the importance, especially in the um, pervasiveness of animation. So I really love that connection back to Daffy Duck. I also really loved Finding Funny Man. Mm. which I found by accident. And I don't remember now how I came upon it. I came (laughs) upon it, I think, at Amazon because they have it for Kindle. Mm -hmm. And they have the collected uh, comic books. And one thing I don't really pursue in the article are the connections to some of Kay's films. Um, Some of them are prescient because there's one where, uh, which is based on Funny Man Going to King Arthur's Court. It's, it's, it's a riff on the Mark Twain novel. And there are comic bits that you swear they're taking it from Court Jester, which was made about 10 <laughs> years later. Let's dig into your argument a little bit, uh, because you draw on Martha Bayless's description of, of Kay as, as personally heterosexual but culturally queer in his films, uh, particularly in the 1940s. And you write in the article's conclusion that Kay, quote, enacted a carnivalesque disturbance of the culturally normative of adults' notion of maturity and of the physical limitations and singularity of bodies. Um, so there's some out there, I'm sure, who haven't read the article yet. So can you say a little bit more about that, Kay's culturally queer persona in the 40s and, and why it seemed to resonate in that era? Let me take the uh, first part of the question and talk about what, how, what are the coordinates of the culturally queer persona. And I identify three basic coordinates that work together. And the, the first one, which is the one that scholars have talked about, uh, are the, the doubles. Um, the way that he will play opposite himself, either by being a doppelganger or by the plot having forcing him to be disguised as someone else. So, for instance, in Wonder Man, which is I see as really central to Kay's persona, that's his second musical, he plays identical twins. And one of the twins is a witness against a gangster and is rubbed out, and his ghost uh, possesses the other twin. So one is a Broadway Joe type, and the other is a milquetoast librarian. And so Kay then is balancing both of those. And the numbers I, I talk about are really the most disruptive part. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition, there's his Jewishness, which I think is a coordinating feature. And I talk about that. And also the, the prevalence of psychoanalysis in the 40s, which was then referred to as Freudism, and the fantasy elements in his uh, musicals, the number of, um, of uh, daydreams, dreams, or fantasies that his characters uh, get in, uh, engage in. And all these work together to create a ground where he can be very riotous. And so at the same, one see, at, on one respect from the plots, they're all, they all seek in the end to normalize him. On the other hand, in the numbers particularly, they, are, um, they make him more like a Daffy Duck type character. And so I I expand upon that at great length in the article and historicize it. In terms of the the reception, I think a lot of this has to do with the disturbances to notions of gender and sexuality that were occasioned by the war. And so there's a a stronger sense of gender fluidity uh, in the 40s that his his persona connects with. And, And he's not alone. 
Um, because there, it, this is also when you have a lot of sissy comics. Uh, Bob Hope's persona in the 40s is very much a sissy, particularly when he's, he's acting opposite uh, Bing Crosby. You have Sinatra's characters in his musicals in the 40s. He's a sissy, an effeminate male, opposite um, Gene Kelly's more virile sidekick. And the thing about Danny Kaye is that he, he plays opposite himself. And so his persona embeds these two poles of masculinity in the single body. And that's where, again, it connects back to uh, his performing and his numbers um, and so forth. Yeah, and especially the, the, the point on, on how pervasive that notion of doubling in is, is in his roles was really striking to read those examples. And some of the plots are quite torturous to make that happen. And it really is quite convincing about that being really central to, um, to his persona. And in, in, uh, finally, in The Court Jester, which I think is the queer movie that he makes in the 50s, given the more conservative uh, temperament of his other films and of the uh, of ide- ideology dominating the culture at that time, the doubling multiplies because he, um, again, his, his main character is a milk toast who disguises himself as a Robin Hood type character who gets hypnotized and the hypnosis goes back and forth between an Errol Flynn type of smooth smooth swordsman and his uh, his real character and he turns out to be uh, the one who saves the day so it it they get more and more complicated and the doubles uh the doubling plots really run throughout his filmography as long as he's the leading man well, also getting back to the funny man comic which you know for those who haven't read the article he's like a an alternate comic book superhero character modeled on Danny Kaye as this comic who inadvertently becomes this crime fighter and kind of embraces it. And that's actually on the cover of Cinema Journal. So if you see the cover, that's what you're looking at. Um, what a fascinating character. It's by the creators of Superman after DC fired them and they lost their rights. And so they created, they went to the other extreme um, in using Danny Kaye uh, as their inspiration for a new type of superhero. You do mention the, the comic didn't last too long, and uh, also you raised that the 50s changes this period of greater gender conformity and, and sexual repression. So Kaye's uh, film career, with perhaps a major exception of The Court Jester, kind of shifts away from those maniacally queer performances of the 40s. Um, and then, as you know, he becomes situated more as a children's performer, which I, you mentioned his records, and I remembered that as I well. I grew up with, yeah, with, with Danny Kay records. Yes. And you write that, uh, quote, it may even be safe to conclude that Kay's transformation into a children's entertainer could have been a deliberate response to a changing ideological climate. So I'm curious about that, and also if, if you see there's still any kind of lingering queerness in the children's performances or not in this period. I think it's very evident in The Court Jester, where in his monologue, The Maladjusted Jester, he plays a child. And so, at least in the narrative context, I don't quite see it as well in the, um, uh, in the recordings, but I'd ha- have to study them more. Um, the roles that, and the films themselves are much more heteronormative overall. So that even in On the Double, which is a sort of remake of On the Riviera, and those bookend the decade. One is from 1951 and the other is 1959, I believe, 1960. He, he takes on the persona of a very wolfish rake and the wife falls in love with him. And so 
his character, his persona is now being used to personify a more domesticated masculinity of the sort that was uh, hegemonic in the 50s. And for this reason, I think Court Jester really stands out. Uh, and it's, I think, because its location in this wacky medieval past that allows his character to uh, evoke much of the wildness of uh, his 40s films. His 40s films are really, were really undiscovered or uncommented on because they weren't available. Uh, uh, they would come out on a Laserdisc or DVD and then disappear. Uh, they have now been reissued by Warner Archive, so they're now more available. But most people think of Danny Kaye and they think of Hans Christian Andersen and White Christmas and, and possibly The Court Jester. You mentioned also in that, that pier that some of the films were, I don't know, flops is the right word, but they weren't as successful as some of the previous ones. The idea kind of audiences weren't sure, like, was this a children's film? Was this an adult film? That's right. And I think by the 50s, he's still known as a comedian and he does concerts for, for benefits with symphony orchestras, as Jack Benny did. So he still has his comic persona, and then he did his TV show. But I do think that, it, that with, from Hans Christian Andersen on, um, I think that really cemented his persona as an entertainer for children. And then his connection with UNICEF, that, what's her name, Julie Wilson? Yeah. Because uh, I, I use her piece, that she talks about in conjunction with the featurettes. She mentions the, the one or two of the featurettes that Kay did at this time. I think one was for Paramount, and then then he became the spokesperson for UNICEF. And, and so that really shifted his career from the way he was in the 40s. But he also was older, too. Hmm. And I think his age played into how uh, both how well he could uh, play with his body the way he did in the 40s, where he really is very elastic in his, uh, and very, very nimble. If you watch him in those early films, I'm amazed, really, at his de physical dexterity. He's a really, really physical performer. Also, the, uh, the Jewishness plays in there as well, because he never played Jewish, um, but he was known to be Jewish, and that was also another open secret. And I don't really pursue this, but it is also a possibility that in addition to the sort of taming of his queerness in the 50s, there's also more of a taming of his Jewishness. He plays one Jewish character in his theatrical films, Me and the Colonel, in the late 50s. And then he also plays Jewish in the TV movie Skokie later in his career. But otherwise, it's known that he's Jewish. And during one of the infamous um, hearings at, at UAC, he and other stars like Edward G. Robinson are called out as being Jewish and hiding it with their changed Anglo anglicized names. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, referring back to the uh, the Funny Man uh, comic and the sure. front cover of uh, Cinema Journal having it. And actually, that came with a note on the back cover or inside back cover of, of Cinema Journal that that was uh, chosen to honor your longstanding service to SCMS. So I want to talk about that a little bit before we um, depart, because you are uh, currently president of SCMS and have been for, is it your tenure started in 2015 and ends this year? Is that correct? Uh, right. I'm president-elect for two years and then president in 2015 and June... 30th is my last day as president and then I become past president it's sort of okay. like the ghosts of Christmas past <laughs> present and future so I still have two more years to be on the board okay but I will be there as the uh, as past president and sort of historian so this is nearing the end of my tenure as as the leader Okay, nice. Well, what has that experience been like? I mean, you're, you've headed up the most vital organization in our field. So what, what, how has that gone? How have you uh, felt about that experience? I have really enjoyed it. 
my I guess it was my second year as president-elect. I was head of the task force that um, hired our executive director, Jill Simpson. And with her coming on board, I have been president while the infrastructure of the society has really changed to accommodate our enormous growth so that, uh, as other board members have, have put it, where we used to be a mom and pop store, we're now a big box store. And that has caused streamlining of some duties and a increase in other duties. And we have a a great office staff now with Bruce Brazil and Molly Youngblood working with uh, Jill at the University of Oklahoma. So administratively, uh, that has been very rewarding to see to completion the project that I, with the other task force members, started with our uh, job search for a new executive director. In addition, I think our last conference in Chicago was a great success. Yeah, and this we had implemented a change in policy to increase participation. So we are basically now asking people only to serve one role for uh, the conference, and we were able to reduce the number of panels, increase the quality, and increase the numbers of participants. Um, so I think that was a, a big success, and the success of the of the conference really is is very much due to uh, Leslie Lamond, our conference manager. She cannot be, she can't be thanked enough in my view. One of the downsides of being an officer at SMS though is that one gets so busy that there are, it's hard to get to, to go to panels. I sometimes can't go to like on Fridays, which is our, our very busy day um, with the members meeting and the rehearsal for the award ceremony and, and so forth. And so in that regard, I'm looking forward to being a civilian again, but that won't be yet for a couple years. And the board members are really wonderful to work with. I've been now on it for four years, and so I've seen shifts both in the officers, the uh, treasurer, secretary, and also in the elected board members and the student members. And everyone does more than pull their weight. I mean, it's a very enthusiastic and very cooperative and collaborative group. And that doesn't mean that uh, everyone is always on the same page and of the same mind for decisions, but that there is a lot of discussion and people listen to each other. And the other thing I have to say, having taught for 40 years, uh, is very first meeting I went to, I realized that the big difference was we don't have deans and chancellors to answer to (laughs) and who will reverse our decisions. And that means we get things done. Yeah. That's the way to do it. So I think we're on good footing, and I, I hope that everyone had a great time in Chicago and that everyone will also uh, plan on attending the next conference in Toronto. Yeah, definitely. That was my sense. I mean, you always, it's always both kind of watching the Twitter hashtag and then kind of hearing things in the hallways. I just heard so much praise at the conference, especially for the quality of papers and workshops that, you know, people were saying every single panel they went to, um, they thought it was excellent. And that doesn't always happen. So no, and, but I think, I think it showed in our ability to reduce the number of, um, of panels that we did not sacrifice quality, but we actually increased it. Well, I'm intrigued that this is happening at the same time, as you mentioned, SCMS is expanding. And I know that's, you know, you mentioned there are probably some disagreements within um, the group. And I know there's some who are traditionalists and feel SCMS should, you know, stick to the traditions and others saying like, no, let's be a wide tent. 
Well, I do think that it's a wide tent and we're going to be a wide tent. I don't think we can go back and, and become the Society for Cinema Studies, which is what we were 20 years ago. Uh, that was the origin of the field. Our field has changed. Our field has become much more diverse in its focus, in its methodology, uh, in its theoretical underpinnings. And I think that's all to the good. Uh, and that's partly the, the importance of the SIGs and caucuses that crisscross the, the wide net and create more narrow channels for people to, to move through the conference if they so wish. At the same time, it's not just a confederacy of a bunch of SIGs who plan the, the panels and so forth because we still have that wide net program committee uh, and the reading pairs are not organized according to the SIGs. They are organized um, differently in terms of how the different proposals are sorted. And I th also, I think that that is what creates the exciting and eclectic variety of the, of the program. When I first started SCMS, I used to make a point of going to panels about which I knew nothing, <laughs> <laughs> like on animation, because there is a point where you start just hearing the same conversations and the same debates over and over. And so I do think it's important that, that people take advantage of the wide net and not just go to the same kinds of panels repeatedly, um, even though one is drawn to them. I know that's what I look for first. Um, I'm very happy the classic Hollywood uh, cinema SIG has been formed, and I'll first highlight those, uh, those panels to see about uh, going to those. Well, as you mentioned, maybe in the coming years we'll have uh, a little time to do that, go to more of the ones that aren't just uh, the things you have to go to and more of the things you kind of choose and want to go to as your time is freed up slightly more by not being president anymore. So uh, what work can we look forward to you presenting in future SEMSs? I know you said uh, the you know one possibility, this uh, study of comics, but I also uh, see in your bio uh, book-length study of the back studio picture, movies about making movies. I'm finishing that. I hope to get that the manuscript finished by the end of the summer. Summer. The back studio picture is the movie about making movies, and it's a. I'm using a term that was coined by Frank Nugent in 1937 in the New York Times. He was a film reviewer and then became a screenwriter. He wrote The Searchers, for instance. And I'm I'm using this term because of its parallelism with the backstage musical or the backstage film. I'm looking at it as a genre. And it's a genre that's as old as filmmaking because it starts in the silent era and it continues. Last year, there were four back <laughs> studios, La La Land, Rules Don't Apply, Cafe Society, and fourth one now that I can't remember. <laughs> we'll look it up later. Um, oh, Hail Caesar, because that's the one I'm using in my book. Yes, that's, a, that's the best one. <laughs> um, it, it's gotten a lot of play in the in this century at the Oscars, either winning Oscars like The Artist or Argo, or being nominated for Best Picture like uh, La La Land. And I'm I'm approaching this both historically but also thematically. And my argument overall is how this genre um, has functioned to define, redefine, and reiterate um, the mystique of Hollywood as a mode of branding American motion pictures. So the full title of my uh, book right now is Hollywood by Hollywood for the self-reflexivity, and the subtitle is The Back Studio Picture and the Mystique of Making Movies. And it's a very, it's a very large genre, too. I, there's well over 200 films in my filmography for this book. Wow. 
you get a lot of work done. It's a it, well. I've been retired for three years. So. <laughs> okay, well, there it is. <laughs> Just retired from teaching, not from uh, writing and research. So you don't have grading. You don't have grading. That explains it all. Yes, it does. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we really look forward to uh, seeing that work forthcoming, and appreciate you uh, having talked about your past work. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, this interview. I've really enjoyed it. When I was a lad, I was gloomy and sad as I was from the day I was born. When other babes giggled and gurgled and wiggled, I proudly was loudly forlorn. My friends and my family looked at me clamorly, thought there was something amiss. When others found various antics hilarious, all I could manage was this. Oh, this, <laughs> oh, this, <laughs> oh, this. <laughs> my father, he shouted, he needs to be clouded. His teeth on a wreath, I'll hand him. My mother, she cried as she rushed to my side to reproach, and you don't understand him. So they sent for a witch with a terrible twitch to ask how my future impressed her. She took one look at me and cried, <laughs> What else could he be but a jester? A jester? All right. Thank you for doing that interview, Chris. It's always nice to uh, to hear from those who are uh, trying to keep the the ship of state running in SCMS land. It's a complicated machine. Yeah, I love we got a two for one in that interview there, both uh, information about his research, but also more information about SCMS, the conference, uh, hearing that uh, about the Chicago conference or some really interesting stuff in there. And I think some some additional things to chew on as we go forward and think toward future SCMSs. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with these seminars. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to participate in. And especially for such, you know, we talked about this is going back to I think maybe the interview with Leslie Lamond, where you use the phrase I think we're we're both a a little big conference and a big little conference, mm. um, which would be very interesting then with a seminar, the notion of having papers in advance and people being able to cut to the chase in an even more comprehensive way than is possible with workshops. So I think that's a really nice space to have kind of a small subset of really informed discussion within SEMS. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, to seeing how that, how that plays out because mm-hmm. it's tricky. You know, we want to have as many people participate as possible, but you want to be able to have opportunities to um, have rich engagement. And, and, you know, I can understand the frustration of those who would prefer that we still be able to do multiple roles at the conference. Yeah, referring there to the idea that we can only have one job, yeah. which uh, Stephen Cohen said he thinks was really responsible for giving us such a great conference in Chicago. Um, but I know many are still debating that, and there's frustration of wanting to, uh, you know, for instance, still be able to do a workshop while doing a panel. So I think that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on as we go forward with conferences. Yeah, and, and both of those things can be true. You know, that's... Mm-hmm. And as as I you know, talking to students who are trying to navigate this the complicated world of uh, commencement here at Notre Dame, I found myself um, trying to remind uh, you know one of our graduating seniors, and of course trying to remind myself that ambivalence is a reasonable response to the world as it is around us. So, yeah. so I can hundred percent recognize the. Um, the, the real value of limiting the roles. Well, I can also understand the frustration about, about how that changes opportunities. Yeah, and that's why I also appreciate having very thoughtful people like Stephen Cohan, who will be uh, outgoing as president, and then our colleague, Pam Wojcik, yeah. is coming in as president. And so we know she's great, and so we know she go- she's going to have the uh, the best interests of, of SEMS in mind as she goes forward. Yeah, yeah. And the, those lines of communication are open. Obviously, they're talking to us, and any of you can speak to them directly, too. So if you Definitely. have feedback about these issues, 
send him a note. And I'm pretty sure we can swing a Pam Wojcik interview sometime along the way. She's one office away from me, so that can happen. Um, And if you want to chime in with us about any input on that, uh, you can reach us over email at info at ACA hyphen, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) I started that very confidently. I'm like, I know this email address. Info at ACA hyphen media dot org. Okay. That's also our website. If you pluck off the info and at ACA hyphen media dot org. We, of course, can also be reached on Twitter at ACA underscore media. Yes. All right. Excellent. Uh, but don't leave us yet. Don't go rush to a computer yet uh, because there's something... It's time to go to the Netherlands. It's time to go to the Netherlands and you'll want to save your trip to the computer until after you've heard about Radio Garden because you're definitely going to want to go there then. So check it out. We're here today to talk about Radio Garden which uses a global map interface to let the user stream live radio content from around the world. Let's have a listen. For si det sånn. Men resultatet er jo vi konsentrerer oss om å finne, og det er jo utmerket. Takk kan vi ikke gå til den funk-låta, Frost, Frostbit? Frostbit, ja. Frostbit. Well, thank you for joining us this morning for Words of New Hope with Pastor Wayne Cordero. And you can check him out online at enewhope.org. There's more to it than that, and we'll get into the different parts of Radio Garden but you can find it at radio.garden and we'll have a link on our website. Radio Garden just won a Webby Award as Best of the Web in the Media Streaming category. And I'm here today talking with Alec Badenoch, who is deeply involved in the project. Alec is lecturer in media and cultural studies at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands and endowed chair of transnational media at the Free University of Amsterdam. Alec was the lead researcher of the Dutch branch of the Transnational Radio Encounters Project, which is the research group that put together Radio Garden, this live streaming radio project. Alec, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you. Okay, so in the early days of radio, back in the 1910s, there was this thing called DXing. And it's still there. And it's still there. Is it? Yes. Okay. Yes, um, there are still people that do this. It, it's gone through a weird digital transformation now that, that people literally uh, listen to a station as far away as they can and then post online. So the, the, the QSL card, which used to be a postcard, uh, and there was this whole ritual of sen- sending these postcards. You would hear a distant station, 
write to them saying you'd heard them and they would then find out, oh my goodness, this is how far away we are. And then they would send you, the DXer, a postcard back. It was called a QSL card saying, thank you. Yes, that was us you heard, because sometimes that was not clear too. And that all runs via online now, but DXing is still a thing. Okay. Um, the ethos behind it, as you could probably tell from, from that description, is to hear things as far away as you possibly can. And people actually go on these excursions to deserted islands and set up temporary stations, and everybody finds out that they're going to do it, and DXers all over the world, even now, will then tune into that frequency to see if they could tune in this deserted island <laughs> that is transmitting for 12 hours on one particular day on one particular year. So that's part of the, that was, for a long time, the thrill of radio listening. And I feel like listening to Radio Garden, you get that thrill back. It's it's. Wow, there's this station in northern Norway that's playing their church service in Norwegian, which is what I was listening to yesterday. And I don't speak Norwegian, and I don't go to church, but there we are. There I am listening just to, like, there's somebody out there listening in, um, you know, La Paz. There's this schlocky Spanish-language pop song in the middle of the night there, and I just picture this, trend, this you know, heartbroken listener out in Radioland. I have to say, as, as a radio historian, like you are, um, that was one of the things that surprised me most about Radio Garden. Because when we took our ideas about transnational radio, and we'll probably get to that in a minute, when we took those to the designer, one of the first sort of ideas he grabbed was the old radio dial, which didn't have numbers on it, it had cities. And that's a symbol that we took for the Transnational Radio Encounters Project, and it's almost become a cliche in and of itself. In, in recent years, there's been a resurgence of interest in the old radio dial. And so he said, okay, we're gonna have this global navigation. And we all said, yeah, great. Because if you're a radio historian, you think, yeah, that, that was always the promise of radio. And yes, good, that's what it's about, but it didn't feel new. What we weren't expecting is that to people all over the world, it would feel new. And the this sense of very easily shifting around the globe. I used to have a calendar in my house that uh, was pictures of planet Earth from space, and it was called the home planet, and it was quotes from astronauts about that experience of suddenly seeing the globe with no borders and what that does to you as a person and your sense of home as a planetary home. And the things we are hearing back about Radio Garden are echoing that sentiment, and, it, and it's exactly the same sort of view. Maybe we should actually, I'm not sure we've told people what it actually looks like. So for those who haven't seen it yet, tell us a bit about the interface. And You can turn your browser to radio.garden. That's radio.garden. Bringing you all the hits from Turkmenistan. Yes, <laughs> is the idea. So what it is, um, you then see the globe. Uh, and it's a very easy sort of kinetic navigation with the mouse. You can swing it around. Uh, there's a plus minus. Uh, to zoom in and out, uh, and there are little dots all over this globe. We very we were very explicit with the designer that national borders should not be pictured. City names are not pictured. So what you see is a topographical map of the world. There's no weather patterns, mercifully, because uh, you'd never see England, uh, <laughs> being all of that as it may. So, and what you can do then is you can tune down to any place you see a dot, 
uh, and you will get all of the, the station streams that we have been able to scrape for that dot. Um, and it's all MP3 streams, so there are several stations that are not on MP3 that we can't put on the map. But that's we, we can probably talk about the, the, the issues of the technical issues. Beyond that, so that's, that's the basic navigation. That's the basic thing. Uh, that is a live layer, but we, because we were a, a research project, we also have several other layers going. There's one uh, on jingles. It's all about station identification, and it's, com it's a comparison of the way different stations identify themselves. So you can see you know, what's current radio practice, and it comes with explanations. Uh, they're all done by Goloforma at this moment, uh, who is the head of the project on what are radio packaging elements. So it's really a crash course in station identification. That's what we call it. That's the advertising blurb on the website. I wrote that myself. <laughs> You're a genius. A genius, I say. Thank you. Uh, being all of that as it, as it may. Um, then there's a layer on history, and that's actual radio clips that we have put in to try to show what you have to do to make radio intelligible over borders. Um, so it's things like, uh, most of the clips that I put in were uh, people speaking, they were usually show introductions to show how a host both roots themselves in the place where they're sitting, but also makes it accessible, maybe talks about places they're going, places they've been, imagines the listeners around them. Sometimes it's about protocols of translation, so what things get translated, what don't, what role does the music play. Um, and really trying to, to pick apart the things that are so everyday and, okay, and also sort of everyday transnational about radio, things that you would take for granted. Okay, this is what, what this person is doing to make everybody feel at home, even though they're miles apart. Um, one of my favorite clips, and the one that, that's getting the most listening, is in fact from Radio Moscow. It's the announcement of the very first woman in space from Radio Moscow, but it's in English. And the, the third cool thing about that is that I got it from the archives of the Dutch International Broadcaster. Because that, so you get another layer of the Dutch were listening to this and recording this. Because the main listeners of the international stations were the other international stations. So they could disseminate news to each other uh, during the Cold War. Radio Moscow was actually, before they put in the hotline, uh, during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev got a message to the U.S. via Radio Moscow saying, call us, call us now, because there wasn't a hotline and there was no, and it was the middle of the night. And so that was, you know, they literally used Radio Moscow as a telephone. So also sort of to, to, to give people an idea of what a weird world this transnational sphere of radio is. Um, finally, uh, to come to, to the fourth layer, uh, we've got a layer of stories and that's about how people use transnational, how you use radio to tune your own world and your experience of the borders. And some, you know, in some cases, it's a feeling of disconnect. So you're sitting, uh, the, well, there's a story by me uh, in there talking about listening to my hometown college radio station, KSCU, which you can now get perfectly crystal clear from here, from the Netherlands. And it's a just it's a really weird feeling, especially listening to they've got a show called the '80s Underground that I listen to occasionally, and so it's all the same stuff that they were playing back when I was listening, and it's this really weird time and space warp, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like being back there. And and well, what you hear in the story, in fact, is 
the one moment it does feel like a, a time and space warp is when they're clearly playing vinyl and the record skips. <laughs> Suddenly it's like, oh my god, I'm a teenager again. Because I hadn't heard that sound, because I'm not a vinyl collector. And that sound, I was like, oh my god, I'm going to grow a mullet again. <laughs> but anyway, so, so but it, it, it's also stories of... And really the, the, the question behind that was, how does radio create home for you? And sometimes it's it's... It reminds you that, that you're home when you're distant, and it, it, it's sort of it's a constant calibrator of distance. Um, I always think of, of radio anyway is, is one of its main functions is calibrating the world. What do you mean by that? I, I mean, it's sort of a gentle way of, of letting you sort of tune your connections with the world. So you think, okay, I'm here now. It reminds you what time it is, sort of reminds you where you are, also tells you what you're listening to, so it lets you be gently in touch in the background. Uh, but at the same time, it, it is kind of your choice. So you know, when I say it lets you calibrate your world, it keeps time, but it, it sort of stays in the background and lets you tune the world the way you like it. You know, sort of adjust your place in the world fairly easily without, without thinking, unless you want to. It allows you to dip in consciously and then set that in the background again. And it's that shifting of attention that is one of the things I love most about radio and makes me wish I listened more. Well, one of the things that I noticed clicking around, so I'll click on, you know, Kigali or someplace, right? And it may be something completely unique, or it could just be another Coldplay song in the most unlikely of places. And so it's really playing with center and periphery or forcing me to, and of course we know this, like we know that this dot that looks like it's in the middle of nowhere is the middle of somewhere to somebody, right? Is as global as everything else. Yes. So as you're clicking around, what are some of your favorite experiences or, or some of your favorite moments that, that kind of put that into relief, that kind of globalization of radio? For me, it's usually discovering something that I haven't heard very often. Um, my favorite station to listen to in the background is, is in Yaoundé in, in Cameroon. Uh, it's called Bala Radio. I wish there were more talk, actually, because I also like to hear human voices, but it's, I think it's largely uh, playlist-based. But it's all Afropop all the time, and it's great. So that, just hearing very different sounds. I also really like tuning into ridiculously local stations, you know, hearing people talking about, this is what the dog catcher is doing this week. And it's like eavesdropping in on somebody else's world. And if it's a language I understand, great. Uh, if it's not, that's kind of fun too, just to see what, what it sounds like. Part of it is uh, I'm very interested in tuning into also sort of minority language stations, uh, just to see what they're, what they're doing and, and to what extent they're sounding different. So. I've tuned into the Gaelic stations in the Western Isles of, of Scotland, for example. Just also just to hear the, the language because I like it. So that's a, that's a really nice discovery. And some of it also is it gives you a very different impression of the places you're tuning into. So your your sort of geographic mental image of a place doesn't necessarily jive with the acoustics that you get out of it. And and that dissonance, if you will, I think is really productive. And I think that's. I get the impression that that's some of the pleasure that people are getting from it. We don't know. <laughs> we haven't actually done a whole, we, you know, we've got a lot of web analytics because when you're getting, um, we, as of mid-March, we had had 52 million visitors, which is not bad for a project funded by academic research. And that was before the Webby Awards. So it's 
it has to be much higher than that now. I think it is going to be much more than that now. Um, I'll need to check with our designer. He's the one that, that's following the analytics on that. Well, you were sort of talking about that whole thing, which kind of brings us to the politics. And I have a quote here from The Guardian. They were writing about Radio Garden. And they said, quote, with global tensions high, anger at the political establishment and fake news dominating social media discussions, it feels like there has never been a better time to enable people to reflect on human communication on an international level. So does this project have a politics and then coming back to what you were saying earlier about radio does radio itself contribute to that that's the langdon winner's classic question do artifacts have politics obviously there there is a politics for us of for us there were academic politics first of all of needing to show that radio was a transnational thing it's it's nationally archived uh it's getting really gets vamped into national canons of remembrance and we wanted to say no um, there has always been this transnational element and this element of hope or there has been a utopian element of radio as a world connector since it started. And some of it, to come back to, you know, I don't believe in, in necessarily politics of, of an artifact itself, but the way radio has been sold has always been this promise of free roaming, freeing you to go anywhere you want in the world. And that comes up time and again and again. Uh, in various different guises and with various different politics. Um, so it's also come forward as things like the freedom of information that entered into national politics, first of all, because American firms wanted to break the, uh, the monopolies of continental wire services. Uh, so freedom very quickly became capitalism, and that's one of, that is one of the, the, the politics of free roaming as well that also comes with radio. It's a, it's a fine line that you tread. And of course, people are now looking at this, this application, also looking for commercial developments of it, which, as you can imagine, goes against a lot of the politics that we have put into it. Because one of the things that I like most about Radio Garden is that it does one thing that the whole history of radio hasn't yet, or, or analog radio hasn't. It removes the strength of signal as an indicator. You can have essentially shout cast on your laptop or whatever podunk streaming service you've got, your dot is as big on the map as the BBC. And that's as you know, we have removed that hierarchy. Your transmitter power means nothing here. Although, of course, it does, by definition, require a particular kind of streaming. I'm, I that, actually, that is a technical barrier. Right, right and right, I click around and I get a lot of, you know, stream not available or, or whatever the error mm -hmm. message is. So there's the technological There's, there's a lot of cleaning up. There. Yeah, and it's, it's a different no set of technological pirate barriers. pirate radio, for example. And that's, this is not a criticism. Yeah. It's just kind of pointing out the ways in which it's almost impossible not to replicate some of those uh, There is pirate radio. Well, well to the extent that, that, that there is such a thing as pirate radio on the internet. Um, there are a lot of underground radio stations that have a small local signal plus a live stream. And we've got the live, so my, I had a PhD student visiting from Madrid who also works, and there are no authorized community stations in Spain. There are loads of stations, but they are not actually legal. And he surfed over to Madrid, and he's like, wait, those are my friends, and I know them next to the, the big ones. And, and his experience suddenly of his own city on Radio Garden was, hang on, that's a lot more open than what we feel we've got. That is so cool. On, on site. So, 
Your point is very much taken, and there are imbalances in the globe that, that we are working very hard on. Um, the worst, I think, is um, Africa, just because radio is so vibrant in Africa, and it's simply underrepresented, uh, underrepresented both in the live streams and in historical clips that we've put in. The latter is just the project wasn't working on Africa, so um, we have a lot less personal experience on that. But the other one, I'm not entirely sure yet what the barriers are, whether it's people aren't using MP3 streams, you know, so that's just a technical issue that, that very much creates a global imbalance on this ideal globe, or whether it's just we haven't been scraping the right sites for, for streams. You mentioned that there are no political lines on the map, no city names, mm -hmm. no national borders. I doubt that was a very contentious decision among the group. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's what was behind the idea of the metaphor of the garden? Why is it radio dot garden? I'm you know nice use mm -hmm. of the top level domain name dot garden. Right. By uh, the well, way. well, it had just come it had just come open uh, as well. The funny thing is dot radio is just about to come open, and I wonder how things would have been different uh, if that had happened first. That was something that the, that we hadn't brought to the designer, because we, we had brought a bunch of our ideas to the designers, they came to us with the idea of, of a radio garden. Um, and I think it was because Dot Garden had just come open and they were sort of working with exactly this idea of sort of browsing around. Uh, and it resonated with us instantly also, because exactly, you know, a garden has everything in it, and especially you know, the English idea of gardening is just throw all your seeds around and just keep it looking like controlled chaos, which is how we kind of felt. And, and it was also uh, something that is tended, but something that grows of itself. And, and so all of the metaphors of garden, just we all went, yes, that, the, let's do that. And so it was very nice to see, because our studio Pucky, uh, which had branched off from uh, a design studio called uh, Studio Moniker um, in Amsterdam, has done all the design on that. It's Jonathan Pucky, who just did an amazing job creating this this very smooth navigation uh, and distilling some sometimes very esoteric academic ideas into something very simple and very clean uh, and I think that's gone a long way toward, toward it being uh, very popular and it was very interesting to see what the ideas of radio that they got sort of bounced back to us were and so the idea of garden coming out of what we were what we were saying uh, about the, the world of broadcasting was, was an interesting thing to come back. The old radio dial was certainly one of the first things that they said, how about this? And we said, yep, yeah, yeah, that's part of the, that's part of the story. Uh, there are also games that people play on Google Maps where uh, Google Maps just randomly drops you in a spot and you have to guess where you are. Um, and so we, we're also looking to, to come up with more ludic aspects of this as well, um, of, of tuning in. But right now, suddenly, you know, all of our plans kind of have changed now because we were not expecting this to go viral. One of the first things that Jonathan said to us when we sat down to talk about what just happened, you know, within a week or something of, of it launching and going viral was, we have to figure out what it is that this is now. Because it, it's not, it isn't an exhibition, which is what it's set out to be. This is now a radio navigator. This is now a new form of radio. Oops. <laughs> Which is great, but it's, it's a little bit, it's daunting. So suddenly what was meant to be research dissemination is suddenly heading, as a good academic, the first thing we think of, 
we need to study this phenomenon. So one of the things we're looking into is, okay, we need to, we need to get research money to study this uh, because it did something we didn't expect, which is you know, great scientific thought. But we're also trying to figure out where does this go? How does it grow? Uh, how do we bring more people in? Because in spite of the fact that there are thousands of live streams and more getting added daily, there need to be more in Africa, uh, in Asia, certainly. Uh, almost half of our users uh, are in Asia. Well, India is, is huge. The, the order of use, and again, this is from a few months ago, is India, Spain, Brazil, Saudi Arabia is very uh, popular, Mexico, US, Colombia. So Latin America, there's a lot of use. Then UK, Argentina, and the UAE. So what does that tell you? Um, I think there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, I think diasporic listeners are one thing. It's highly possible that press freedom is an issue. Saudi Arabia being so high on the list is surprising. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think those are uh, some major things, is, is exactly that, that kind of diasporic use. Otherwise, as much as it's a transnational project, you know, I wonder if, if it feeds into certain national habits and, and practices of radio listening. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, one of the funniest things is that India found out about Radio Garden via the, the website of a small local station in Ireland. And India proceeded to completely crash the website of this poor little local station in Ireland because that was the link that they were all following. You know, the, the entire subcontinent was following uh, to, to tune in Radio Garden. So we, we're getting weird global dynamics like that. We've had a total of four requests from stations to take their, their stream off. Because? One said it was violating their copyright. <laughs> okay. It was, it was a station in Finland within a, within a week, a formal letter written from a lawyer came you got saying, a cease and desist. desist. Oh, yeah. Now, now you made like, it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, great. <laughs> Fine. Uh, we also had um, sort of a former U.S. intelligence person write to us saying that one of the streams was connected to Hezbollah. Um, and I think just not wanting to wade into that, we, we took it off. We actually kind of expected a lot more of that kind of politics than we got. You know, people saying, how, can, how dare you put, you know, Radio Free Chechnya on? By the way, I have no idea if such a thing exists <laughs> and whether it's there. Or, you know, Radio South Ossetia. No clue uh -huh. whether, whether that's there, whether anybody cares. Duly noted. Yeah. Um, and for all, we have not been made the subject of Russian cyber hackers yet. So, uh, yeah. Yet. Wait till this this interview gets out there, though. Yeah, well, yeah. So coming back to those questions, okay, now we have to decide what this is and where it goes. What have the results of that exploration been? That discussion is ongoing. Well, one of the, the one of the main things that, that's going on is we're trying to add more content to the stories and to the history layers. Uh, and in fact, if you go to transnationalradio.org, uh, you will find a link to pitch us new stories. Because we are acutely aware, it's, it proved to be much harder to get. It's a real art to get the right size clip up. Because uh, it has to be short enough that people are going to want to listen. The way, and again, Jonathan has done a beautiful job of designing, while you're listening to a clip, the description comes at you sort of sentence by sentence to get you thinking about what you're listening to at any given moment. But there's a real art to getting those sentences filled in so that they're in time with the clip. 
and getting the clip right so that it actually shows what we're trying to, to show. So it's, it's, it proved a lot harder to get content up than we wanted. So we're trying to get more. Um, we also have had some copyright issues around that. Uh, so that's one major thing is, is the potential dialogue and the potential that's there still needs to be realized. Can you be, because some listeners may have some interesting transnational radio stories to tell, what kinds of things are you interested in if people were? Well, in terms of stories, what we're really interesting, interested in is the way people use transnational radio. So is it about listening to home? And also that they can tell us about what it is about radio that does that. Is it the sound? Is it hearing your own accent? Uh, is it hearing the music from home? Is it simply the act of, of having a specific time of day that you do this and that you, you know, you're always cooking dinner and so it's actually more about smell than sound? Smell radio, <laughs> the next great adventure. That kind of thing. Um, because it's kerjillions of different things. So stories that, that can really give us that spectrum of the way people are using radio. Also that demonstrate, because again, one of the, the main things we're running up against is this idea, uh, this is, we are living in a moment now where nationalist politics are huge. And I think we need more than ever to show people that, or to demonstrate that we are living in a transnational mediascape. Your country is not this self-contained territory and never has been. We need radio to tell that story. And we needed to, to tell it well. But at the same time, it's also the kind of interaction that we all recognize. So even you know somebody like me, who is a migrant but is a really privileged migrant, is using radio in the same way. Uh, and we, you know, we, we think nothing of tuning in Africa and, and listening to Afrobeat. I think most people say, yeah, that's great. Aren't we all lovely and cosmopolitan? Um, we need to be able to, to, to focus more on the cosmopolitics of radio. So what, what is approved mobility and approved cosmopolitanism and, and when is that dangerous and we need to be talking about that or, or I quite frankly don't find mobility dangerous but exactly you know it's in an age when people are literally talking about closing the borders you know, literally building walls we need to say we, we don't live in a walled world that way um, none of us live that way it doesn't work you were telling me that there were people who were complaining about the interface, like they wanted it by genre or something. That's true. Some people, uh, you know, have written to us saying, you know, I, that was quite literally, uh, somebody said, you know, why is this sort of by genre? I want to be able to find all of the rock stations in, on the globe. But for us, one of the things that's interesting is, is again, it, we never meant to, or I certainly never meant to indicate that the transnationality of radio is easy. You know, as soon as you, you come up with a, a global format of rock, that raises the question, what is that? What are you leaving out? What's in? Who determines that? The politics come rushing back in and, and the barriers show up somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's the excitement to me of doing transnational radio. It isn't saying we're all one big global kumbaya. It's saying, okay, where are the, where are the borders actually? Pivoting from that back towards the academy, what does this project tell us about the state of radio studies? What does it tell us about what is accomplishable within academic scholarship as a digital humanities project? What, well, what I would say, I mean, radio studies has been saying for years, and, and people like Michelle Holmes have, have been saying this very explicitly and very loudly for a long time, is that it needs to be transnational. We don't understand radio without it. And to an extent, I almost feel like Transnational Radio Encounters was just the final 
embedding of that. We said, yes, okay, come on. <laughs> this is what we're all doing now. I mean, that argument, I think, was won five or ten years ago, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think what it's now doing is, is sort of setting it back into the world. Um, so I think there's that. What I think is the most important in terms of, of the academy, uh, and I think this, this also comes from um, the European way of doing things too, is that scholarship now in the world that we have has to be collaborative. It has to be big, it has to be open. Something like Radio Garden can only happen really if scholars are cooperating across borders too. You know, we discovered even with the team from four different countries and eight researchers trying to get stuff up, when you're facing an entire globe, getting enough content up and on is really difficult. And that's actually a much broader conversation than even we have the capacity for. So I think to use, to, to borrow uh, a metaphor from Kate Lacey, we need to change the way we collaborate and the way we're listening to each other. Um, and I think that, to me, is actually as much the vision of scholarship that, that Radio Garden comes up with is it needs to be a, a much more open listening practice as well, that, that this suddenly is something that needs to be opened up to all academics and, and become a platform for encounters that way. Okay, so you just won the Webby Award, which I don't know how prestigious it is, but I think it's awfully damn cool. It's pretty prestigious. What have the reactions been generally, not just with the Webbies, but also ordinary listeners getting in touch or people who are using this? Um, generally speaking, people have just let, you know, we, we've had everything from YouTube videos by 13-year-old teenagers oozing about how cool this is um, to, basically, if you look at Radio.Garden on YouTube, you get a collection of people just narrating their experiences of navigating the globe, which is, that's a thrill. That's cool. We'll have to link to some of those. Is there such a thing as fame that comes with this? Not for me. <laughs> um, no, I mean, for a lot of it, and especially, and he deserves all the credit for it, uh, Jonathan, the, the designer, um, much of the awards and much of the attention, uh, the attention are going to the live layer, which is all him. Um, and so, like, the Webby Award is entirely for him. Fair enough. You know, I, I am absolutely happy with that. Uh, but that means that, that uh, a lot of what comes back to academia, even though the project initially came out of this, is a lot of sort of reflected glory, which is a weird sensation. Um, but on the one hand, I kind of feel like we're not equipped for the, you know, and we sh there's an extent to which we shouldn't be. I mean, yes, the, 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 the academic agenda behind the site, I think needs to be repeated and Jonathan does that, but I am not equipped for dealing with millions of people. You know, it's not my job. We're trying to figure out whose job it actually is to suddenly <laughs> run a, a website that 28 million people are using. Are there any people that you want to credit that should be named as part of this being particularly instrumental? You mentioned Golo. Golo Fumo, um, well, my colleague here, uh, Professor Sonia De Leo. Um, a big bit of credit goes to the Netherlands Institute of Sound and Vision, where it's formally embedded, which is the, the Dutch Audiovisual Archive. And they also pay my salary for one day a week. Now, that's, 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 nice. where, <laughs> that's where the professorship comes from. Also, Caroline Mitchell uh, at the University of Sunderland, Peter Lewis at London Metropolitan University, Per Jauertz at Aarhus University, and uh, Jakob Kreutzfeldt, late of uh, Copenhagen University. We were the main research team that went into putting this together, and we're the people that are working on this now. And, oh, and Tobias Grasse, who is now tirelessly working to get a lot more uh, 
content up. Well, congratulations on all the success. Thank you for telling us about it. It's a very exciting new way to think about radio, to listen to radio, to explore radio, radio history. Um, I think it's just a fantastic project, well-deserved going viral. And thank you for talking to us about it. Thank you so much. Such fascinating stuff in there. And I'm especially taken by the idea of how much this can facilitate international communication and mm-hmm. Bill's point about the hyperlocality of this, being able to click in on, you know, very um, interesting issues in, in small places around the world. Really cool. Yeah, it's such a great time for sound studies and radio studies and the the mobility and hyperlocality of audio is so it's just wonderful. It's really great. Yeah, so I can't wait to get clicking on Radio Garden. Yeah, so give it a give it a listen. I think you'll uh, you'll find some good stuff in there. Yeah, and you can of course Google it, but you'll also find links on our website again, aka-media.org. Ooh, there you, you got go. It down now. Nailed it. Got it. Woo. <laughs> Well, we actually, again, in addition to having a little more time for podcasting now, we have more time for watching stuff. So what are you watching, Michael? Uh, well, I'm partway into Handmaid's Tale, oh. uh, which had which has become a kind of, you know, paratextual uh, thing. At our, yeah. we, have, we had the Handmaids at our, at our uh, commencement. Yes. Um, also been watching Stranger Things, mm-hmm. uh, which actually I, I was thinking about with in listening to, to Bill's piece um, about the about the both hyper locality and mm-hmm. transnational uh, global kind of reach of, of radio. And I, I love that, that moment with the, with the little kids in that show um, who are so enchanted with the idea that they're going to be able to speak to Australia oh, from yeah. their, from their middle school, you know, science room. Yeah. Um, I'm, it's kind of a weird show. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause it's so stuffed full of references to eighties, uh, film and TV. Yeah. Um, and it's fun. It's kind of weird that I don't know if there are any girls at that middle school that those kids go to. It's very <laughs> odd, right? And you, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. there are the the writing of female child characters on that show is really weird. Hmm. Have you been watching it? No, I haven't. I watched the pilot, but and and to say I didn't watch other episodes doesn't mean I didn't like the pilot. It's just yeah. uh, I kind of try to watch one Busy of time. yeah one of everything people are talking about. Um, Thirteen Reasons Why that's another one people oh, yeah. have been talking about, um, but I haven't haven't seen that. Um, also, probably interesting gender representation there. Um, but so it sounds like yeah, you're really in the streaming game right now. Well, I'm trying. You know, I'm going to make my way into the 21st century one okay. of these days. Right. Trying. I, I've stuck with one old fashioned show um that I adore and it just finale just a few days ago, I think. MasterChef Junior. Oh yeah. The uh the reality cooking competition show with like ten, eleven year olds. Mm-hmm. I love it. Because it's <laughs> adorable and sweet. And then a ten year old overcooks his chicken oh. and he just falls apart. And then I cry because it's so sad. <laughs> and this little guy is just in tears in front of Gordon Ramsay and it's it's adorable television. Yeah, I've been there, brother. Yeah, I love it. Good stuff. All right. Well thank you all for listening to our uh our little our little 
podcast. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us for that long break there. We were just we were just bowled over. So yeah. so we're glad to get back to it now though. We are. We have a very full summer of programming that we're working on. So um hope to fill up your your uh family road trip hours. <laughs> Definitely. A lot to look forward to. Acamedia is produced with the help of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we, of course, thank Bill for his offering in this particular episode, but also in general for his production help. And we couldn't do it also without Todd Thompson at University of Texas at Austin and his golden ears. The golden ears of Todd Thompson. Yes. Uh, Also, we've got help from Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and Joel Neville Anderson at the University of Rochester. We are very grateful for all of their hard work. And a reminder, you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, everywhere else. Find podcasts or access and leave us a review. Yeah, post a review. Yeah. If it's positive. (laughs) If it's negative, write it on the back of a $20 bill and send it to us. (laughs) That's a great idea. Yeah. I I thought of that myself. Good job. Yeah. I thought that was pretty good. That's just the kind of innovation Acamedia has become known for. Yeah, we're cutting edge. We are cutting edge. All right. Well, we're going to cut on out of here. Yeah. Happy summer, happy long days, and uh, we hope that it is a productive and relaxing time for you. Giddy up. <laughs> <laughs>